Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. You hear that? All those Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. I am your host, Eddie Eifler, and even though I am fighting off a cold this week, I am still here for you, here for the people. So I just wanted to say thank you for coming by, stopping by, and checking us out. Uh, before we get into everything, just a couple of uh, quick announcements. First of all, I want to say a huge thank you to last week's interview, Franklin Cruz, for being so open, so generous with his time, and just being a fantastic, wonderful, amazing human being. If you haven't checked out his interview, I highly suggest you go do so, where he talks about things like the differences between Slam Nuba and the Mercury Cafe and Minor Disturbances being a team member, the differences between coaching and being a competing member, and what he plans to do now that uh, the whole world is open to him. It was really a, a great interview, and I want to say thank you one more time to Franklin Cruz. The other big announcement is that I think this is the perfect week to introduce a new segment to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. This new segment I am calling The Hard Truth. This is where we're going to get down deep and talk about some things that maybe are not okay. Some things that uh, happen in Denver Slam that maybe you've seen at your local Slam, whether you live in Denver, whether you haven't, that we can just call out and say, look, this is not the way to act. And this can be either applied to poets from the stage, it can be applied to audience members. Um, Yeah, anything I can use as a learning opportunity is going to go into the hard truth because so many people need to learn about what's going on and they're not going to do so otherwise. So this week we're going to unveil a brand new segment, The Hard Truth. Before we get into that though, let's start it off with the Mercury Cafe. Denver! 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 Lift high our spirit, sing well our praise, for in you we live and are loved. Alright, the first thing we're going to talk about from the Open Mic and Slam on the 21st is the Open Mic, of course. We're going to dive on deep into that right now. We had eight people on the Open Mic this last Sunday. Uh, Those were Jessica Bardot, Taya, Jimmy Vagabond, Alyssa... Grace, Ali Eden, Danny, and Ann E. Um, the, the couple notable notes that happened during this open mic, uh, the first one I want to talk about is Jimmy. Jimmy Vagabond gets up there, and at the very beginning of every open mic, the host will usually say something to the effect of, every open mic performer has five minutes. And you can do whatever you want in that five minutes. You can read you know, multiple poems, you can read one single poem, uh, the only thing we don't encourage is a musical accompaniment because it just takes too long to set up and break down. And, and Marilyn McGinnity, the owner of the Mercury Cafe, has told us that she already has a night for music open mics. So she wants Sunday to be poetry related. But other than that, you can basically get up on the stage, do what you need to do, just do it in five minutes. 
Well, this guy Jimmy gets up, and the, before he says anything, he says, you know what, I'm probably going to go over time, and then proceeds to, in fact, go over time. Uh, one thing that has become a bit of a tradition at the Mercury Cafe is that if you start to get a little long on the open mic, the host will just start clapping to signal to you that your time is up, and that whatever you're doing, you should probably stop talking, wrap up your poem, and get off the stage. This is not something meant to discourage. It's not something meant to degrade. It's meant to let you know that you, if you're doing this, are being the asshole, and not the host. The host is not being a jerk in this case. You are. The host is just letting you know how much of a jerk you are being. Well, Jimmy Vagabond lived up to his promise, and he, in fact, went way over his allotted five minutes. So, the host started just trying to clap him off stage, and the audience started picking up on it and just clapping him off stage. But he was a stubborn, stubborn open micer, and he actually just wanted to stand up there and finish his poem. He didn't care what else was going on. So let this be a lesson to you. Don't be that guy. Even if you're not that guy, don't be that guy that gets up on the open mic and just loves to hear yourself talk and wants to hijack the entire show. If there's a time allotment, if there's a... a, a an allocated amount of time for you to be on that space, don't go over it, because there's a reason that that time limit is there. In this particular night, we had not only your open mic and your slam, but we had a feature, Ash Vernon, who was amazing. But if we have a whole bunch of people on the open mic going over time, if we have a whole bunch of Jimmys getting up there and reading for seven, eight minutes, when the allotted time slot is five, that takes away from everything else, and it just makes for a, a longer night. And so, like, if you yourself hear the clapping going on on the open mic, just treat it like what it is meant to be. It's supposed to be an indication to you that you need to wrap it up and that we got to get on with the show. So I'll play you a clip of what exactly that sounds like. They'll be led to the clear light by and by. A pain pierces at the core. Identity unravels and is no more. Om Ahum Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi Hum. I aim my arrows into the gloom. Yeah, that was Jimmy Vagabond, and he went on for a little bit after that, just letting you guys know that if this happens, it is for your own good. The other big notable note that came from this open mic was uh, Dickie, who was someone who I hadn't heard of before. Uh, he was super interesting because he got up and he basically read half his poem in English and then switched to Russian, which is unusual. Unusual in a good way. I'm, I've always been fascinated at the sound of other languages. I've always been fascinated at hearing people speak in a language that I do not speak. So this was sort of a treat for me. I hope it's going to be a treat for you, just to kind of give you a, a glimpse behind the curtain about what Dickie was doing. Let me play you a clip here. Who am I? Ktoya. Who am I? Ktoya. Who? Ya. Who ya? Who am I? Kto ya? Minya zavut diki. Voin svieta ya jest. This doesn't happen too often at the Mercury Cafe, but I'm always so excited when it does, even if I don't know what the person is actually saying. That kind of is a testament to the power of tone and the power of voice and the power of presence, where you don't actually have to know what this guy is saying in order to get the message behind what he's saying. So I wanted to put that up there and just say, awesome job, Dickie. I, I appreciate when you bring something different to the open mic and, and makes me kind of see things or hear things in a different way. So I appreciate you. After that open mic, we had an amazing feature. We had Ash Vernon, uh, who I've been hyping Ash Vernon for a couple weeks on this show. 
and I didn't know very much about them. I didn't know a whole lot about their work, about who they were as a person, and so I was I was blown away by this feature set. This had everything. It had uh, gender politics. It had funny. It had depression. It had relationship power dynamics. It had uh, snappy in between poem dialogue. It was it was everything you could ask for in a feature. Uh, let me play you a couple of clips from some of the uh, areas that Ash uh, touched on. First of all, this was from uh, their first poem. That's the other thing is Ash didn't really read the titles of any of these poems. It was just like one into the next, which is absolutely fine. In fact, I think as a feature, it sort of can make the audience want to investigate more. Like say you've got some books or CDs or some other product and you just read a bunch of poems, then that's going to if if one of those poems really sticks into one of the audience members in and they weren't going to buy it beforehand, at the very least they're going to come up and say, hey, what was the name of that poem? The one where you said this thing. Oh, well, the name is this, and you should check it out on this book or this CD. So uh, I don't know the names of any of these poems, but I think a lot of times a well-written poem speaks for itself, doesn't need a title. So let me play you a clip from the, the very first poem from Ash's Feature. Uh, this one really dives into the relationship power dynamics theme that Ash touched upon. So your method of coping looks more like taking your body to market just to see who's willing to buy it. This is how you give yourself up in pieces. And one other thing that I really appreciate about just poetry in general that Ash did exceptionally well is this idea that poetry in its purest form can show you the hidden truth, the hidden meaning behind uh, what we ordinarily see, what we, we see every day. So I thought that that last clip was a great example of really just kind of like sticking to the heart of the matter of relationship dynamics and power dynamics and taking your body to market to see who's going to buy it. It was, it was a really well-crafted image. This other quote I'm going to give you, uh, the other thing that I was really impressed about with Ash was how open they were about their past and about how uh, Ash identifies as genderqueer and prefers they them pronouns but has been in relationships with uh, men has talked about what those relationships were like and so here's another clip from another one about relationship power dynamics kind of losing yourself in a relationship losing your identity for the sake of the other person and for god's sake don't be ashamed of the days when you were hurting don't swallow your depression just to make his a little easier when you ache ache louder when you ache ache louder now, I really enjoyed this piece because I myself have written about this same topic, not from the de the depression angle like Ash touched on, but I have written about the topic of losing yourself in the identity of someone else if you're in a relationship. You know, it, call it codependency, call it power dynamics, call it whatever you want. But I've talked about this topic before, and I'm very super interested to see how other people tackle it. And I was really struck by the angle of depression in this uh, particular piece and about how Ash can be so honest with their own depression and dealing with the depression of uh, a partner from the past. I thought it was really really well done and it all just goes on to add to this this same narrative of individuality versus maintaining your own, your own individual identity while being a part of a, a unit, while being a part of a whole. And how depression can really add to that uh, muddying of the waters sometimes. It was an awesome piece. Next, the, the couple of clips I'm going to show you are Ash's take on being genderqueer in a woman's body. Now, one thing they talked about was having surgery to uh, alter their, their appearance. 
specifically, I think the quote was, uh, I cut my boobs off <laughs> so that they could feel more like themselves inside the body that they were just born in. And I've got a couple of clips here. One of these was prefaced by this idea that it was an older piece and how the poet is different, but the piece is still a good retrospective. I'm going to play you a clip from that one right now. And I can't turn traitor to my own powder pink. I can't bleed the woman out of my lungs. I have tried. She does not go easy. Now, I am not any kind of foremost expert on genderqueer theory or, or genderqueer politics or anything in that realm. But as someone who has been involved in poetry for as long as I have, I've been around a lot of just different types of human beings. And my, my perception specifically of trans and genderqueer was uh, cracked open a couple of years ago when I was on the 2014 team. And so I had to learn a whole lot very quickly to sort of negotiate and, and navigate my stance or, or how I could contribute to the empowerment of, of people who identified as genderqueer, who identified as trans, who didn't have a set defined gender. And, you know, how could I, as a cisgendered, heterosexual, straight white man, um, not overtake any kind of conversation, not uh, impact? print my ideas of what gender and sexuality is onto someone who didn't fit those. So anytime I get to hear a, a poem or any kind of uh, discussion or topic on gender queer identity is always going to be a real eye-opener for me. And I'm, I'll be the first to admit that I'm still learning about all this. And I make miscalculations and I, I misstep. And sometimes those missteps can be harmful. But whenever I do that, I always try to be the first to apologize and try to be the first to correct whatever behavior uh, led to that, that harm, that pain in whatever way. So I thought this was a great clip from someone who was struggling with that, that sort of identity, being born in a female body but not identifying as such, but still wanting to hold on to that feminine part of themselves. It's a very delicate balance. It's a very light tightrope to walk and I think Ash did it great and the last uh, clip I'm going to share for you was from one of the uh, later poems in the set really comparing um, Van Gogh and the great art that Van Gogh had made to the depression that caused him to make it and to the psychosis and the mania that caused him to hide in his own art and then just kind of uh, putting that out there and and blowing it up for modern poetry audiences. This was just such a fantastic piece. And here's a clip from it. To stand in the center of an ocean and see nothing but desert. To be seated at the feast and still swallowing sand. Depression is the yellow paint. Art is a coping mechanism. Such a striking image of being just surrounded by ocean but seeing nothing but sand. And the piece would go on to... Uh, later delve into this idea that Van Gogh, like, it took a whole lot of madness and it took him ending his own life to create this timeless art that we now enjoy, you know, however many years later. Um, and how that can be a beautiful thing, but it's also a very tragic thing. If we expand that out to all artists, if we expand that out to poetry and film and, and sculpture and, and any other realm of art, then sure... Uh, madness and mania and depression can make for some very intriguing, very interesting expressions. But there's a trap 
a lot of times artists feel like they need to be quote-unquote tortured in order to create this this beauty and ash uh, what they were trying to say with this was it's not worth it like the the madness the suicide the the self-mutilation the the all of the the results of that madness are maybe not worth the art that it creates because while that is while that can be very beautiful and can be very timeless it, it is also a testament to destruction so this was just a fantastic feature i loved every single poem that ash uh, read out to us and you should definitely check out uh, any other poems by ash uh, i did hear that this was the last stop on their tour and that they are heading back home uh, if memory serves they are going to texas so if you're around the Texas area, I know that's a pretty big spot, check out Ash Vernon. Now we are on to the slam. Uh, your slam had eight competitors. We had your sacrifice was Stina. Then we had first up was Connor Marvin, followed by Wheeler Light, then Polly Lippman, Megan Fowley, Stylo Marks, Catherine Grace, and Paula Rose in the first round. I know what you're thinking, those who have uh, heard this podcast before, those who have been around Denver Poetry Slam before, what a stacked first round, and you are absolutely correct. We had so much going on just in this first round. I'm going to play you five clips because there was that much going on in this first round and there was that much to talk about. Uh, first up was actually from The Sacrifice from Stina. And I thought this was a perfect way to kick off a slam. This was literally the first line we heard from Stina when she got up to the stage. This poem is from my book called Hope You Like Dick. <laughs> right? There's no better way to set the tone than that line. Am I wrong? That was fantastic. That was amazing. That was just your sacrifice. That set everything up for later on. Uh, first up, we had Connor Marvin, who did a, a brand new piece. Connor is just writing his mind out in these last couple of weeks. He has been on a tear of just producing and writing, and it's been a real treat to watch from the audience perspective. Uh, I'll play you a clip from his first round piece. All you see is the smoke, not the bright flame causing it, the blazing illumination burning behind the billowing clouds of symptoms, the bright side of hell flashing brilliant in my wild eyes. Such a well-constructed metaphor here, controlling metaphor for Connor Marvin. All you see is the smoke, not the flame causing it. All you see is the danger, not the brightness. Uh, all, you need to find out where it originates from so you can snuff it out. Uh, you can apply this to so many things. You can apply this to art. You can apply this to addiction. You can apply this to depression and, and mania and madness. So that was awesome. That was uh, Connor Marvin's first brand new poem that he read in the first round. After that, we had Wheeler Light also coming with the brand new work. Uh, Wheeler has been writing a series of poems either dedicated to or about Aaron Carter. And that is amazing to me. That is so great. Uh, I'll play you this first round clip from Aaron Carter Part 1. Aaron Carter taught me a flair for the dramatic, so years later, I explode out of the closet, cock in hand, with someone else's cock in my other hand. What an interesting way to explore one's own sexuality than by just projecting it out onto someone like Aaron Carter and how we can uh, take this one idea and really see it from multiple dimensions. Plus, uh, Wheeler Light is just so fantastic about dropping in humor when he needs to and being serious when he needs to. Uh, he can switch seamlessly from light to heavy to, to funny to serious to uh, any other emotion in between. 
So that's that was Wheeler Light's first round poem dedicated to Aaron Carter. Um, then we had uh, another notable note here of Megan Fally, who was also reading a brand new piece. Uh, that was a prevailing theme of the night. It was gender identity, sexuality, identification. And Megan Fally, she also wanted to tackle this idea of heteropatriarchy, but from the perspective of a female identified person being sort of willfully silenced by a cisgendered heterosexual man. Uh, this was just an interesting topic just starting out the gate. And of course you take that topic and give it to Megan Fally and she's able to just run with it. So here's a clip from that poem. He uses the word heteropatriarchy and for a moment I want to bake him a cake, rub his tired man feet, I want an apron for him and I'm not even straight. His poem would go on to later say that who was the bigger misogynist in this conversation? Was it him or was it me? Uh, him for talking over me or me for allowing it to happen. Uh, such a, a thick piece. So layered and so well organized and well constructed. So that was another great new work from uh, Megan Fally. After that we had Catherine Grace getting up and reading an older poem, one of the first poems that I ever heard Catherine read, but I don't think I've talked about it before in this podcast. This is her ode to Comic-Con, and one thing that I love about Catherine is that she doesn't take herself very seriously. If you look back at the themes, if you look back at the topics being discussed from the open mic up to this point, it's all very serious. Even the stuff that Ash was doing in their feature that was funny, it was about a serious topic, but Catherine is unafraid to get up there and just be completely silly and talk about how great Comic-Con is. So here's a clip from Catherine's poem. You never have to apologize for being an adult woman with a lot of action figures. Like, a lot. <laughs> and they're everywhere. I don't know why people date me. <laughs> and I also wanted to mention that as Catherine was reading this piece, uh, Wheeler Light, I don't think I'd ever heard this before, and I was sitting right in front of him in the audience, and he was losing his mind during this piece. He was just so happy to be in the room while Catherine was uh, reading off this poem about Magic the Gathering that he was, like, about to jump out of his skin. I've never seen Wheeler react that way to a single poem ever. And that is really a testament to uh, the power of of not taking yourself so seriously. The power of deviating from all of these very stern topics of gender equality and depression and uh, identity and sexuality. And sometimes it's okay to just get up there and read a poem about being a nerd. And read a poem about Comic-Con. So thank you very much to Catherine for that piece. In the second round, we had Connor Marvin, followed by Polly Lippman, then Wheeler Light, and then Catherine Grace had the high score. Connor went up there and did another brand new piece. Um, I believe this one was called Ghost in the Machine. This poem addresses so many topics. It addresses education. It, it addresses depression. It addresses change. It addresses uh, evolution. And the clip that I'm going to play you is more on the uh, education front, but it really does apply to a lot of different things. So here's uh, a little bit from Ghost in the Machine for Connor Marvin. I graduated from public high school. My consciousness was poured into the same mold as every other American with some madness, mushrooms, and H.P. Lovecraft complicating the batch. And in context, the factory he's talking about is public education, specifically public high school, and about how public high school has a tendency to uh, make a mold and then pour every student into that mold and the ones who don't fit it uh, break it or, and the ones who don't fit it are cast out, ostracized, um, you know, 
sent off into the world seemingly with a stigma. And so Connor uh, uses this to talk about a lot of things. Like I said, he talks about depression. He talks about evolution. He begins the poem by uh, saying that he stands in the same place in Seattle that he once stood years ago, but how he is so different of a person than the person who stood there last time and about how that evolution can be measured uh, sequentially, but it's really only apparent when you take a large amount of time between those two instances. Really great piece, and another brand new one from Connor Marvin. After that, we've got Wheeler Light with his second Aaron Carter poem of the evening. Uh, let's play that clip for you here. But you know abuse too, Aaron Carter. How it consumes you. How easy it is to become addicted to pain. We would have a lot to talk about. I would just love to talk to you to understand how you ended up the way I am. Sometimes, I'm not even sure you exist. So unlike the first poem he did for Aaron Carter, that was more about Wheeler's own identity and Wheeler's own sexuality, this one was more about the person, Aaron Carter, this one was more about the celebrity and what it takes to live in their shoes and we all idolize them and we kind of forget they're human sometimes. But if we were to be able to switch places with them, would we do it all the time? So another way to, like I said, just take another angle on the same topic, take another uh, little bit of a turn onto the same uh, idea and make a whole new different poem about it. Wheeler Light is just, he's playing around right now. And it's such a treat to see someone who is willing to go to these places, who is willing to explore things that aren't quote-unquote traditionally rewarded in a slam setting, but he's going to go there anyway. And I appreciate that about him. I love the fact that he's writing a series of Aaron Carter poems and that he just wants to read them and slam with them and see what happens, let the chips fall. Uh, so thank you again to Wheeler Light. And like I said, Catherine Grace had the high score that round. She read another poem that is one of the older ones, another one, uh, one of the first ones that I heard, uh, In Her Own Right, which talks about uh, female artists, but specifically female artists that attach themselves to more famous male artists and how the male artists can overshadow the female, uh, even if she is equal to or superior to her male counterpart in whatever art they happen to uh, exist in. And the specific example she gives is Emmy Hennings, uh, who was one of the founders of the Dadaist movement, um, being an artist in her own right, but how not a lot of people know about her because she kind of got swallowed up by the more famous male uh, artists around that time. And so here's a clip from In Her Own Right. Your contribution to the art world led unconventional poets the right to a stage, and yet they call you a muse, a waif, the OG manic pixie dream girl. Doesn't take herself too seriously, and that's absolutely true, but she can definitely turn it on, and she can definitely address more serious topics and more serious themes in a way that only she can. This is only a Catherine Grace poem. Nobody else uh, in Denver could have written this piece and make it come out the way it did. So uh, Catherine Grace once again distinguishes herself in the second round and gets the high score, moves on to the final round, where we had Pauli Lippmann and Catherine Grace going head-to-head, -head, and there was a bit of a snafu in the scoring here. Uh, Catherine was announced as the winner, but actually Pauli had the high score in the final round. He had it by one-tenth of a point, and there was some miscommunication about um, if we were doing a cumulative scoring system, which means we take... We add up all of the scores from every single round and we get a, a grand total versus clean slate, which is where everyone starts at zero, 
between every single round. And we typically do a clean slate. Uh, if we're doing elimination, we'll do a clean slate uh, slam. The only times we ever really do cumulative are in like team selections or in uh, IWIPs rep selections or Women of the World Poetry Slam selections. So like the bigger deal where everyone reads all night. And so it was a bit of miscommunication. And even though Catherine was announced as the winner, Paulie Lippman actually won the night. Uh, so now, here's where we get into the new segment of this week. This is the hard truth, y'all. As the old adage goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You gotta be cool to be kind in the right measure. Cool to be kind, it's a very good sign. Cool to be kind. So I want to talk about what happened in the first round at this Poetry Slam. Um, we had eight people, but only seven of them actually read, because when Stylo Marx's name was called, he was not in the room, and the host, Piper Mullins, uh, gave it a little bit of time, announced his name a couple of times, tried to get, you know, if he was within earshot, tried to get him into the room and onto the stage, and it just wasn't happening. So, in the first round, they just skipped over him, and we only had seven actual readers in the first round, even though there were eight names signed up, and... Everyone just assumed Stylo had left for the night, that he had maybe some kind of emergency or something pulled him away, and that he just was not able to read. But then, as the night started to wind down in about the third round, he appears back in the jungle room at the Mercury Cafe, just completely uh, unaware of what's going on. He, I guess, was writing in another room with his headphones in for the last three hours and didn't realize that his name was called. And that in itself is fine. You know what? Sometimes we get lost in our own writing. Sometimes we just get so locked in on what we're doing that we can tune everything out and time just kind of flies by. The part that I want to talk about with Stylo was how he reacted to the situation. So he gets, he gets back into the room at about the third round of the slam. It's basically winding down. We've got two more poets to read. One of them is going to be the winner. And like I said, Catherine Grace was announced as the winner. So... He, for reasons known only to him, uh, decides to go up and really just be super aggressive in talking to Catherine about convincing her to give him her victory lap. Because he was so locked in and so zoned in and writing in the other room about what was going on, he felt entitled to her victory lap and was getting very, very aggressive about her uh, giving it to him. And she was flat out. She was like, no, uh, this is my victory lap. I'm going to read what I want to read. And, you know, if you sh if you were here in the first round, then maybe things would be different. But uh, this is something I've earned. So I'm going to go up and, you know, take my victory lap. And it got to the point where people were getting really worried. Like, we had to have human bodies separate uh, Stylo and Catherine because there was a, a real genuine worry that Stylo was going to do something uh, not okay. That he was going to, I don't know, get a little too aggressive or or fly off the handle and, and get unpredictable. Nobody knew what was going on. And so that leads me to the point of this particular segment. If you screw up, the best thing you can do is just own up to the fact that you screwed up. Uh, in this case, Stylo, I think, just couldn't quite reconcile that he, he was the one to blame for his own situation. 
that he was the one who put himself in this spot. And instead of just owning up to that, instead of just saying, you know what, this is my mistake, I screwed up, he started to project that onto other people. He's Even if he realizes that he was the one at fault, he didn't take ownership of that. He starts to uh, put his issues onto the other people in the room. He starts to talk to Catherine Grace and saying, you know what, I was in the other room writing this poem, so you should give me this victory lap. He starts to talk to Piper Mullins, the host of the Slam, and saying, hey, you know what, Catherine doesn't want to give me her victory lap, but I think I've earned it because I was in the other room writing a poem. That's not how things work, Stylo. That's, that's not how life works. That's not how society works. Um, you screwed up, not anyone else, and the best thing for you to do in that moment is to just own up to it and say to yourself and to other people if that's necessary, uh, the reason I'm in this situation is my own fault. And the best thing for you to do is learn from those mistakes. Come back next week at 7.30, put your name on a list, and then be in the room when your name is called. Don't think that you can just leave and exit and then come back and then take something that does not belong to you. That's not how this works. Uh, So let this be a lesson to other people out there. If you can hear this far and wide, if you're in Switzerland, if you're in Australia, if you're in Denver, Colorado, and you either know someone who's done this or you've done this yourself, take heed. And whenever you screw up something in your life, the best thing for you to do is to not pass it on to someone else. The best thing for you to do is just say, you know what? I fucked up. This is my problem. This is my fault. And to learn from those mistakes and not try to uh, project yourself into a space where you are not wanted or where you do not belong. There are so many times in life where we are compelled to deflect, where we are compelled to, even if we recognize something is our fault, to not take ownership of it because that's just how we've been conditioned. But I'm here to say that only creates more problems for you and for other people. And if you take ownership of those problems, if you take ownership of you being the one who screwed up in that situation and uh, just learning from those mistakes and not trying to push them on anyone else, then life is going to magically get a whole lot better for you. And that is the hard truth. And that was also your Mercury Cafe recap of the open mic feature and slam. Now we have a special treat for you. We have an interview with your Mercury Cafe venue champion, the poetic prince of Denver, Connor Marvin. Our guest this week is the poetic prince of Denver, Connor Marvin. How you doing, Connor? So good. So good? Are you yeah. stoked? I'm st- always stoked. Always. I don't get yeah. stoked, I stay stoked. That's yeah. Connor Marvin. Uh, I got a couple questions for you. Yeah? Yeah. If you're ready. Uh, maybe. maybe. We'll find out. We're going to strap ourselves in. <laughs> we'll just take this ride. Uh, first question, same first question I ask everybody. Why slam? What brought you into slam? Um, I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid, when I was like in high school. Um, and I had, yeah, I went to school initially for acting. Um, and then I, I started songwriting um, and was going to be a rock star. Um, and that wasn't going anywhere. And then I got sober and was still writing songs. But, like, bands require coordinating a bunch of people, and I ended up writing some poems and then kind of got in this poetry scene in Boulder and then was taken under the wing of uh, Seth Walker. Um, And he sort of pulled me aside and was like, hey, I want to work with you. You should do slam. I feel like you do the things. Um, And, yeah, and I, like 
accidentally showed up to the Merc on a Sunday and I had gone to some like to Prague Fest, which I thought was going to be like more like post metal stuff, but it was like a bunch of like middle aged tech industry guys playing yes covers and <laughs> and so and it was sunday and and i just like looked up like cafes near me and the merc was open and i was like oh i've heard of that place and it just happened to be a sunday and and dominique christina w- won and she was there and was just like destroying and um and i was like i don't know i got stoked <laughs> That is quite an introduction, Dominique Christina, yeah. in your first like foray into something yeah. proper. Uh, and then the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned before uh, your sobriety, and it's something that you don't really shy away from in, yeah. your, in your poems. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, where that, that inspiration comes from in your writing process. And, I mean, that can be one facet of it. Just, my, my basic general question is, uh, talk to me about your writing process. What inspires you? Wait, about my sobriety or about, about my... And I, and I know that that's one facet of what inspires um, you, so... I mean, I think as someone who's in recovery and as, like, I, um, like, deal with, you know, various psychological and emotional things and, and all that, um, like, it's important for me to have, like, an outlet, I think that also informs my writing style because I think because of both like um, kind of madness and extensive drug use and a couple other factors like I have some like direct access to my unconscious that is like sometimes causes problems for me but is really useful as far as writing Um, what else inspired you? um like I I don't know I don't often like sit down and I'm like I'm gonna write a poem about this like I often um cause it's often when I do that it turns out bad or not bad but like not how not interesting and not how I want it to be and I'm just trying to explain something to myself on the page but I like I start writing often in like a trance state that I put myself in. So I'll sit down and I'll like close my eyes and and like just <coughs> let my fingers do whatever on the keyboard, um, and then look at it and then work with it that way. So it it's like a I think a more abstract process than potentially like. I mean, I don't know other people's experience, but it's a very abstract process for me. So the first draft is more the metaphysical draft, and then everything else is more yeah, polishing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like it gets the that like unconscious or potentially like channeled content onto the page or into the word file or whatever, and um, and then I can look at it and be like, what is this poem trying to do? Kind of, because it's like trying to bring, it's trying to do something. It's trying to bring something into into creation, I feel like. And you just kind of follow it to its ultimate end from there on out, or try to figure out what that end is. And yeah, encourage it. I think sometimes with that process, which isn't, it's not always my process, but um, 
that's why a lot of my pieces start off really abstract and then become more concrete because it's like there's this big chunk of text that's just nonsense it's like completely unintelligible like kind of just <coughs> unconscious it's, it's just very abstract and very sort of experimental and then I'm like what is this even about what is this trying to say and then I'm like oh and then I have my like I can pull motifs and images from the from that kind of like um, more abstract section and then work it into something that makes sense. So, you also just became the uh, venue champ for the Mercury Cafe. Yeah. Congratulations, by the yeah. way. Yeah, I get stoked. Um, uh, uh, what is it like to hold that position for you? Is it something you put a little more pressure on yourself to do or would you just approach this team like you would any other year um, that you had made a team regardless of the position? I haven't really thought about. I mean, I I just I just want to slam, and I was just stoked to be on the team, honestly. So I I haven't really thought about it in relation to that, like being a position. Like I was like, I guess I get this honorary title for a year, um, or however that works. But um, yeah, I haven't. I'm just, like, was excited that I made the team. Um, you mentioned having a, a theater background, mm-hmm. and it's it's apparent in many of the performances you give, this theater background, um, but you managed to do something that not a lot of people can do, where you can be both powerful and subtle with your, with your actions, with your movements. Um, how does that come to be? Do you have, like, specific performance cues in mind when you draft a poem or do you kind of like get it all done and then take a look at it and say well I could do this here and I could do that there I don't think about performance when I'm writing I mean I think about like how it's going to be received and like from someone who doesn't know any of the weird context I have for the piece you know or like what it's going to do what impact it might have but um during some of it's organic and it's just like during the memorization process or during you know rehearsing it I just like um do certain gestures or or it just arises organically um some of it as far as like I feel like there's sort of two aspects one from like the acting background one from a more psychology background and the acting thing is like embodying learning to embody the energetics of the piece. Um, And so when it's going up, I'm going up. All of my, you know, like, I ideally, if I do a piece at, like, the way that it should be done, I'm like, my whole body's vibrating afterwards. Um, And, like, embodying the emotionality and all of that, um, even in, like, the the more muted or subtle parts and then there's also like the psychology of blocking and of like using gestures as cues of like sometimes I'll do like I've the my poem Ghost in the Machine where I do I pull like a hand lever and then I make my hands into like interlocking gears Um, and I do that in two different sections and one of them like explicitly makes sense and then one of them sort of that gesture implies an added layer of meaning 
And so I think it's like part of it's about like cueing emotionality, both for myself and the audience. And then part of it is about like adding layers of context. So like looking at at it on the page there from like versus seeing it on a stage, it should have more context. It should have more layers on the stage for me. And that's just one way to to add that depth. Yeah, is with uh, performance cues. Yeah. Um, well, you are also a student at Naropa. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that experience going to school there. Um, talk about what you're studying. Um, I'm studying psychology, <laughs> undergraduate psychology, uh, and Naropa is a real weird time. It's like. <laughs> Naropa is known as it's in Boulder, it's in Boulder, and it's known as the sort of like the hippie school. Um, and despite that, it's like a very it's like a rigorous institute. The amount of reading I have to do um, is higher than anywhere else I've ever been. And then also, there's like it's all about like embodying things, and so there's no written or there's no like multiple choice exams. It's like you sit in a circle, like, and then two people go into the middle of the circle and one of them is the questioner and one, one of them's the answerer. And you have to, you pick at random one question and have to talk about it for four minutes. And you're graded on how like, fresh your responses like do you not only know the material but also are you just like regurgitating things you memorized last night or if you actually like internalized and embodied this um and so it's a whole different approach to to education it's like contemplative education and um like mindfulness meditation is integrated into the curriculum at many levels and I'm really happy to be there. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you think SLAM has to learn from academia, and what do you think academia could learn from SLAM? Um, I think that SLAM has a tendency towards anti-intellectualism, which I think doesn't serve the community. Um, like in the in the spiel at the beginning it's often like this guy was tired of going to you know academic open mics where these pretentious fucking people present this like abstract experimental stuff that no one can relate to and no one knows what they're saying and that's like not entirely what's what's being said in that but that's kind of like there as this undercurrent in this background of like slam kind of taking an opposing, an oppositional position to, is that redundant? Um, like to academic poetry, um, or to like sort of more page poetry or more abstracted or experimental work. Um, and I think as far as, I mean, one thing that slam can learn from academia is like, there are poems that I see that are like addressing certain things that like the information in them is wildly incorrect. And I'm like, that's not, you're mad about, you're mad about people not understanding a thing that you yourself didn't do the research to actually fully understand. 
and that's kind of a bummer um, when that happens. But also I think like part of what I want to do and what I try and do is to bring, to make more, like I'm really drawn naturally because of who I am and how my brain works to experimentalism and abstraction and, and weird just weird shit it that totally can be compelling and that totally it's there i think the what academia can learn from slam is like to me the difference between like you know these older style open mics and slams is the energy and the engagement and the sense of community um at most open mics you don't see people trying to fully embody their poem it's just they're just up there like reading a thing and they don't really like care if the audience gets it or understands it or it's impacting them um there's no like performative element because there's no like reason to kind of because it's like you're just next on the list and people might clap i think there's a valid sense of like the pretentiousness of like the academic world um, and I understand where some of that anti-intellectualism comes from um, as far as kind of like gatekeeping within academics and the fact that, I mean, Slam also like gives, I mean, I don't know what the publishing world looks like, honestly, but um, Slam like gives people a voice that like wouldn't have, that voice wouldn't have been put in the front of an academic world. And that's super, super important. That's something that academia needs to pay attention to. Um, following up on that, you said that uh, speaking in a general manner, when you go to these older style open mics, um, people aren't as performative with their pieces. They don't embody their pieces. Why mm. do you think that is? There's no... I mean, the scorecards are an incentive. It's like ups the stakes, and it creates tension. And it's like a silly game you know, but it's also like, it's produced, it's produced this great result, because it was like, you tweak one thing, you just put five scorecards in the audience, and they don't know anything about, they're not, like, I mean, they may or may not know anything about, like, poetry, or have studied, you know, anything, and that's not the point, the point is just to have the scorecards existing, so that it raises the tension, raises the stakes, and almost part of it is like, so that people who can't people who aren't like able to bring material that they can embody and make compelling that they feel bad and don't come back (laughs) it's like part of almost part of the thing because there's like and that sounds bad but it's it's like there's open mics where like in boulder there's this one guy specifically who's been reading at the two boulder open mics for i don't know probably like 15 20 years and you can't understand what he's saying he is barely audible and his poetry is awful and he's just there every time and everyone just has to sort of wait through it and there's and so i think that having that thing of like okay you don't get to read any more poems because like you didn't engage with anyone and that wasn't relevant um i mean everything's relevant but and nothing is real yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) <laughs> um, so we've, we've tackled it from the open mic side or the more academic side how do you think Slam can start moving more toward this 
more nuanced, more researched, more, uh, I guess, craft-based uh, type of writing? What's the, what's the first step there? Well, I should say that I don't think it necessarily needs to. Oh. Like, because that's my thing is that I like that kind of material and I want to bring that kind of material and I want to open up the space to more of that kind of material. Um, but I also don't want to be like, that's somehow like better or whatever. Um, but I think in terms of, it's like a different way of looking at doing poems. Like one of them is like to make a point. Um, and so that's sort of the performative essay. And because like an, it's like a, a persuasive essay in three minutes. Um, and I think that that, material is also super important because it introduces new concepts into like public consciousness. Um, but I think also the idea of facilitating an experience can first of all merge with that idea of, of making a point and bringing and being like, I have a thing to say and I'm going to say it convincingly in a way that, you know, the audience leaves and they have this new concept. Yeah, I really like poems that facilitate an experience because there's poems <coughs> where I'm like, I agree with you, you're making all the good points, um, but I'm not necessarily like t like having a real, um, or I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, the, because <clears throat> the reason I like the abstraction, the experimentalism is because that's the language of the unconscious and so to me, the most effective way to communicate, um, especially really complex concepts is through that very, um, through that abstract language, because it's, it's using these, you know, weird images and, and um, kind of conf like warped syntax and things like that to communicate to the unconscious rather than to the conscious ego, which might like be like, oh, I agree with that versus like, you know, two weeks later you like have this like experience and you're like, I just realized a thing. And that was like intentionally or not like a seed that may have been planted. And I think there's the potential and the invitation there um, to fuse both of those together and as far as like and part of it is like slam is set up against that almost like explicitly because it's like poetry for people who don't like poetry in that like you can take someone who, who thinks poetry is stupid um and like with all of the like anti-intellectualism and you know whatever else that goes along with that and bring them to an open mic or to a poetry slam and they're going to have a good time because it's like the energy is there, the performance is there, people are making all these good points and saying all these really strong things. Um, and and so like the five random audience members that get scorecards, like m most of them probably aren't going to be like, oh, I'm going to like really think about this like metaphor and like get in touch with my unconscious and do that. And so I think it's, yeah, it's more about like a different way of looking at writing that I, th I think personally is more exciting where you can men meld the two. What are your goals, both individually and like more uh, general community wise? 
I think the whole thing with slam is like empower yourself so you can empower others, and like that's the actual thing that's happening, and ever, and the audience doesn't even know that because they just show up for this like sort of gimmicky like thing with scorecards and whatever. Um, and so I think like providing or you know planning a seed or providing like an opening or an invitation for like a, a healing like moment or crisis. Um, I think that is ultimately like what I'm trying to do. And that's like why I'm, I think that that's like the reason to come to keep, you know, to read and perform publicly often <laughs> for me is like, hopefully someone is having a really bad time and shows up and me or someone else or whatever. But in terms of like my goals, like that I can write a piece that maybe saves someone's life. And I think that's ultimately the thing as far as like ambitions go, I'd like to get published, but I also don't do anything about that and I don't submit my work anywhere. So that's like not going to happen unless I do that. Um, and also going back to like experimentalism and whatever is like, I want, in addition to like the other stuff, like I want to open up the space for that and be like, this can be compelling. This can be like, and not all my stuff is like wild experimental abstract stuff, but like having at least some elements in there being like, you can still do this here. This is to like open up the space for other poets who think like oh i can't do that because that's not slam or whatever what are your goals for the mercury cafe team this year um write weird group pieces i guess um i mean i think we're on all on the same page in that we want to push ourselves as writers and performers and we're all excited about the opportunity to like introduce material and and concepts into the public consciousness like larger than just like the you know Merck or Nuba like audience um yeah I want to write a we're writing a group piece about like the Berenstein Bears universe and that's real cool so yeah, you guys are creating a buzz it's a good time you're starting to hype yeah uh how do you still quote write weird group pieces but but have like performance and and for lack of a better term like craft uh standards like mm -hmm. uh, do you, how do you reconcile those two things because it's very easy to just say like this thing is weird and it yeah. it's okay if it doesn't like connect or make sense it's because it is what it is it's weird so how do you like bridge those two things i mean like to me if it's weird and it's not connecting, it's like, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Um, because this is like a performance like thing that we do. And so like connecting with the audience is like part of that. And so I think like, it's not weird for this. I mean, yeah, it's not weird for the sake of weird. It's weird in terms of like, like, I don't want to be, it's weird in terms of what can we come up with? Like, how can we be more creative with like topics and with um, composition and, and form and, and staging and blocking and performance and all the things? Like, how can we like 
be more creative than that because there's I think for every topic or for every group piece there's like an obvious thing and I'm not trying to do that like um and there's all kinds of other options that are still like competitive and still will connect um and might connect more because it's it's potentially refreshing to like not do the obvious thing um you mentioned before about how one of your goals is to open up the space for healing and even if you don't do it you would still like to see that um opportunity from the stage kind of spread outward Mm -hmm. Uh, what is your take on poetry as a healing art form um is it uh, i'm trying to figure out how to phrase this yeah uh slam for me in my personal experience has really been about two different uh a spectrum of two different types of people one of them goes to a slam because they really are interested in the competition aspect. They want to like play the game or figure out the game or like mm-hmm. you know mess around with the game. And the other you know side of that spectrum is the the ones who go there to experience catharsis or to, to experience healing. Um, what is your take on like slams capabilities in in those two realms? What do you think? The I wrote a ten page essay after Lenny C died basically about the blueprint that he had kind of, that I felt like was was sort of revealed of like what he was doing um after he passed and part of part of that is it was like he was like cultivate he was planting time flowers and it was like he was like you know back before he went on stage he's like what does this person need to hear this person always reads on the open mic and it sounds like they're like struggling with all these things like what do they need to hear what a um and in this piece i talked about what do i call it synchronicity pools and synchronicity channels or rivers or something um but basically the idea that you get caught like the circumstances of me showing up to my first slam, I didn't even intend to go to a slam that night, but I needed to be there, so the universe made me be there. Yeah, I, I think that like there's certain things that people are going to get there, and that's why you end up there. I was like, had real, I mean, I would have full blown panic attacks where I'd be like hyperventilating on stage, like reading it at half speed because I'm like panting between like every two words when I first started reading and now it's like, I'm fine. Like, (laughs) and it's wild because, and part of it is like the performance and Lenny C was always like, you know, you don't know what you got till you got it going on. Encouraging everyone in the audience to get up and actually participate in the, in presenting work. Um, Because I think that there's the aspect of hearing work that really resonates with you and having that change you. And I've had that experience and a lot of people have. But then there's also the experience of like getting up and freaking out and it being a fucking terrifying time. And then going off stage and you survived it. And people were like, you know, oh, that was a good poem or I liked it or whatever. And then you do that enough times and it reprograms your brain, retrains your like neurology and your chemistry to be like every time you feel that like panic coming on, it's like you wear this pathway of like, no, it's fine. I'm going to survive this and it's going to be okay. Yeah. So I think I think slam, especially because of because of the material that 
there's more another difference is it's more like emotionally connecting than like like the median poem at maybe a more academic open mic isn't about like sort of like issues relating to like um you know shame or or like suicidality or things like that it's like about some trees or whatever and that's totally a valid topic i think slam the environment of slam (coughs) even if you're not reading in the slam and you're just reading in the open mic or whatever it is like that's there for people it's at kind of to use as a resource that's to me why people end up there as far as like the competition aspect I don't... I really dug how you said that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there was a an incident at the slam where this kid was getting real aggressive and demanding that another poet give him her victory lap and, like, got in her face and people had to, like, stand between him and, and her. Um, and it was, like, the most out-of-line thing I've ever seen at a slam and yeah um and yeah Catherine won and like well I mean the whole thing was but yeah there's this the the guy who'd been like I've every time I've talked to him he's never been like oh I'm having a really emotional experience with these poems he's like oh the judges fucking you know they robbed me and whatever and he's like super into the scores and so that's like all he has in his head is just like that and I think that that's kind of like the potential downfall of like there's all these beautiful things that have come out of like handing people scorecards but then the other side of it um, not that like you know caring about strategy and knowing about strategy is like bad because I I do that that's like part of the thing and it is kind of interesting to to work with and play with but when that becomes the thing it's like there's this entitlement of like you know you're there for like oh I'm gonna get famous it's like you're at a po no one even so few people even care about this like poetry like slam ten, is a joke to most people, people get famous from poetry slam yeah. like ever so so yeah too much of one or the other I think is bad because I think the risk you run with the other side with the being in slams purely for catharsis or purely for like healing or therapeutic reasons is that you attach a lot of uh, personal value to the public response it, at least it can be a trapping yeah. like say you get up there and you read this poem that's very like important and very healing to you and you don't get a good, good score on it then you can internalize that and it yeah, can be like real. damaging as well but it's the same thing as like going strictly for I mean that yeah success you know like that is oh, a bad time though when you're like let me talk about my dead friend and you're like a wreck afterwards and judges are like six right? like it's, because well it is such a personal thing yeah. you know it's it's a different removal from like uh theater or even music you know yeah like, uh theater it's someone else's words it's music even if it is your words you're there as a collective and it's part of an experience with slam it's like it's you it's the thing you wrote and it's the stage and yeah. so it's very easy to become attached to that response as as a commentary on you you know like my healing wasn't good enough for these judges and that yeah that can cause some damage or there's the potential to like to be bringing like only material where you're just like you're like oh the thing here is to be super emotional and to like talk about like you know 
trauma and depression and like all of this other shit and then to bring material is just like not really helpful and and just like to over and over again be like i'm just gonna like sort of stab myself repeatedly um and that because i've also seen that happen and like i've seen poets get burned out because they're like presenting material that like may or may not even be authentic to their actual i'm like you can't be this this can't be the totality of your experience you can't just be having a hundred percent bad time all the time um and i think that that has the potential to bring people out um two questions what do you think slam's lasting legacy will be in 200 years when the cockroaches rule the ruins of the earth civilization and they come across like the the, the cloud for the button dick poetry pic. right the, the single dick pic from melissa newman evans and, and they come across like button poetry's like server you know uh, what will be the the legacy of this thing we call slam i think a lot of really interesting poems i think that that's like to me a lot of this is like brilliant writers um and and then also like in terms of slams like very like intentional stance you know towards like goals of social justice like that there were there was this movement of like of poets who were like deliberately and explicitly trying to bring to light and satirize um these elements of of like contemporary american society that are you know destructive and awful and oppressive um and the idea of using poetry as a weapon to do that i think is like i mean it's not the first time it's been done but i think like slam it like in that regard like has like weaponized poetry where it's like if it's like not only you have these like poems that it's like you're having a conversation with a friend and they like don't get some concept and you're like okay let me just share this poem with you and like that's the best way to explain it i think like having that in the sort of public sphere is like really powerful and my last question that i ask everybody so you're walking along a beach find a magic lamp on the beach rub it three times magic genie pops out of the lamp and says you have one wish for denver poetry what is your one wish for denver poetry this genie sucks <laughs> there's only or one maybe wish what you, maybe what you understand about genies is flawed <laughs> maybe they, they oh, know wrong <laughs> all about <laughs> don't you tell me about the gin yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, just to be, like, the art community that we are, but, like, without, I don't know, I don't want to say, like, less drama, but, like, because the art community here is ridiculous. It's so good. I want that to be the focus. Because, like, when people show up to slams, they're not like, oh, let me, like, I want to know about all this, like, behind the scenes, like, like drama stuff that's going on they're like want to see a, a poetry slam and want to hear some poems and want to whatever um and i i think that's the case for the most part but i i just like 
like the Denver scene is so fucking good and like it's such a strong community and so just like all the good things and I just wanted to just like be that and like have that be the thing more focused on that experience yeah more focus more focused on you know because we're all in this in this community where ideally we're all like here to work on our craft and that's like um the focus because like yeah i don't because i didn't like come to poetry slams like to as like a social club you know but there's like a community there that like i got plugged into yeah so i just i just want everyone to be stoked about writing all the poems because there's like some of the most fire poets in the world are in denver and doing all the good things well you heard that you better get stoked that's a direct order from your prince right there (laughs) (laughs) um anything else you want to say or plug or promote before i turn the recorder off I don't know, come to nationals. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to be making, I don't know if this is a thing. Hopefully, I'm going to be making uh, alchemical tinctures and selling them as like a fundraiser for the Mercury Cafe and nationals and all that good stuff. And they're going to be like specifically geared towards like people with anxiety. So keep an eye out for that. Because you better know about it. It'll yeah, it's gonna be a good time. Get stoked. Get stoked. Uh, All right. Keep on keeping on. So if you got that that crippling anxiety, you just gotta find Connor Marvin, and he'll uh, get you set up straight. But for real, skull cap is something that everyone with anxiety like should have on hand all the time because it's like the you should buy some if you have anxiety. Go to Herbs and Arts. <laughs> And or wait until I have my tinctures up and ready. All right. Well, we're going to head back into the studio. Another fantastic interview brought to you only here at the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Thank you once again to our guest this week, Connor Marvin, your poetic prince of Denver. Uh, A few quick hits before we get out of here. Uh, First of all, your feature at the Mercury Cafe this Sunday, um, the 28th, is Nicholas Martel. He's out of Minneapolis. He promises to be a really, really good feature, so you should definitely check him out. Sign up is at 7.30. Open mic begins at 8. Feature gets on around 8.45, 9 o'clock-ish. We are still looking for volunteers for the National Poetry Slam, so you should go and visit npsdenver.com if you'd like to volunteer when the National Poetry Slam comes to your town, comes to the Mile High City. Also, check out Slam Nuba this Friday, the 26th, at the Crossroads Theater, 7.30 doors, uh, 8 o'clock start time. It's the last one that they've got booked for the Crossroads. So this is potentially the last Slam Nuba that's going to happen at this venue. You definitely want to be there and send off the Crossroads in a positive way. Finally, thank you to Jill Carno. I am a very socially awkward baby. Mickey Ran. I know, it's weird. Lindsay Thomas. Thanks, it says pretty boy on the front. That's my gender. Piper Mullins. And now all of a sudden I'm in the middle of some kind of shit show that I don't want to fucking deal with on a daily basis. And the audience at the Mercury Cafe. I need five random assholes. Until next time, treat yourselves well, treat other people well, because you know what? The points are not the points, and the poetry is not even the points. The point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next time. 